You know, last week that I uh, began a, um, a series uh, on discipleship. And so um, I do intend to go deeper and further with that. But I've been diverted this morning and I want to share something that relates to what's going on in the world today around us. And so I've noticed that a number of preachers that I'm familiar with have um, kind of, you know, taken time to pause and just reflect upon what's going on in the world, especially in Israel and God's word and uh, his prophetic plan and his purpose and to take stock of what's going on and where it's heading and what it's pointing towards. And ultimately, uh, we know that it's all going to culminate in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, in which he will rule and reign on the earth. But what I want to share with you this morning, and I have to say I have wrestled with this. And, And then I woke in the middle of the night the other day and my mind just was quickened with quite a few things and thoughts. And I, and I knew then I, was, I, I needed to speak what I believe the Lord has put upon my heart. And I must preface what I'm going to say this morning because the truth is, is that I approach this message and I wrestle with it because I'm, I'm, ner- I'm almost nervous about talking about it. Well, I am in the sense that I come this morning with a sense of fear and trembling at the nature of the word of God this morning. And I say that sincerely, like Paul, when he came, and he came and he said to those Corinthians, I come to you with fear and trembling. It wasn't that he was fearful of them. It was his fearful, the fear of God that he would do right, that he would make Christ and him crucified the center of his message. He wouldn't be diverted away with uh, uh, things in order to keep the, what is central, central. And this is really the motivation and some of the things that I want to consider this morning as we look at this. Now, I must say, it, this may be, maybe, I don't know everyone's thoughts, but this may be um, controversial for some or may not, you may not uh, agree with me. Well, we can only go to the Word and I'm going to share the Word extensively so you'll have to have your Bibles later as we, begin, as we go to different aspects. But the events of Israel have polarised the world this week. And, as, and we can't, when we can see all the natural, but we're dealing with a spiritual dimension. And it's polarized not only the world, and we're seeing that and we're observing that as we, as we, as we are, but uh, it also polarizes the church for various reasons and different reasons, and it sparks a, 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 a lot of things. And, and uh, because there's false teachings out there when it relates to, to the nation of Israel, and so people interpret things differently in this way and in that way. And so again, there's a whole array and concoction of things that relate to the events as they even found in the scripture. And when it comes to what I would refer to as the mystery of Israel, as we find in, in, the, in the word, there was the mystery of the church, 
that Paul spoke of concerning this mystery that was revealed in Ephesians chapter 3. Well, there's also there's the mystery of Israel because the church has grappled with the nation and the ethnic dimension of the Jew and how he fits into the Bible prophecy. And so I don't claim to understand everything this morning because the truth is I don't. But I do believe I understand some things. And that the Lord has over years, this is not something that's just been born you know, in the last few weeks, this is things that you keep in your heart for years and years. And then circumstances kind of draw them out or you, know, you feel a compulsion to, to, to speak on them. And that's how it is for me this morning. But I, I know that we here this morning, we are those who know and believe that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. We do not adhere to what is commonly referred to as replacement theology, that somehow the church has replaced Israel and all the promises that exist in God's word, and some of them do apply to the church in their proper context. But we don't, the church does not replace the nation. Yes, there is a new dispensation, there's a new body, the church, that is made up of Jew and Gentile, and we are one in Christ. That's the wonderful nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't do away with the reality of the nation itself and the ethnic aspect of the Jew and the prophetic plan and purpose of God that relates to it. And so as a result, many have come up with doctrines and teachings regarding Israel that has undermined what God has spoken. But you know another thing that is also I've noted is even those amongst us who love Israel, who pray for the peace of Jerusalem, who are zealous for for Israel and God's plan and purpose, even we, if we are not careful, can be misguided. Even we in ourselves can, can fall into error because of our excitement to want to see God's plan and purpose. And, and we look at the injustice of, on Israel from the world and we, we react to that with a righteous indignation, and rightly so. But still we must not allow the emotionalism and these things that creep in to deter or affect our understanding of God's plan and purpose and how we interpret these things. See, Paul is clear. You know, I was just looking at it just as I sat there just before. You can read all this in Romans 9 to 11, as many of you probably know. And he talks about that God is not done with the nation of Israel. But he says at the beginning of chapter 9, he says, I have continual grief and sorrow in my heart for my countrymen. In other words, he's saying, I'm, despite his joy in the gospel, despite his victory in Christ, despite everything, this is the man who, who, who uh, understood and gave us the New Testament and, its, uh, and the revelation thereof. And yet he says, I have a continual grief and sorrow that resides in my heart. And he says, my prayer is to God that, that, all, that my, all my countrymen, all my brethren, all Israelites would be saved. And he again goes to talk about, their, despite 
that they have been put aside. Yes, as he says to the Gentiles, yes, the branches were broken off even. But he said, understand this, God has a plan and a purpose and one day all Israel will be saved. So it's that continual grief. So when we look at what goes on to Israel, we, I think we as the church, we feel that same grief, not in the same dimension even that Paul would. But still, we, as we grow in the Lord and identify with Israel, we, we feel that connection. We feel that continual grief and anguish and sorrow that we bear in our heart because at the end of the day, they don't know Jesus. And we rejoice when we see Jews get saved and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we pray for and that's what we labor for. We thank God that he has a plan for Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God. Israel will be saved. Israel will be glorified among the nations. Christ will be glorified in Israel. And he will rule and he will reign from the city of Jerusalem and he will sit on his throne. And that's something to get excited about. Hallelujah. Because we're going to be part of it. And so there's a lot to get excited about as we consider all these things and Israel and the Jew. I got your attention this morning? Good. <laughs> like I said, because I come from a place, I can't exp- express to you this morning the, the trepidation that I stand here to address some of the things that I'm going to talk about. Now, has anyone ever heard the term, for those that study scripture, is a phrase, it's called over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of, end, of the end, the study of the end. And we, we, Bible students, give themselves to the study of prophecy. And rightly so. And we identify various prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, and we know that they will be fulfilled. But in our zeal for Israel, in our love for Israel, in our excitement for God and His plan and His purpose, sometimes we overstep the mark and we try and interpret events that are going on and we say, oh, this is the fulfillment right there. Uh, you know how it works. And so what happens is the Christian in his, in his sincere desire uh, uh, in these things uh, what happens is, is there are events and circumstances and instances where Scripture is applied where Scripture should not be applied, where prophecies aren't fulfilled. Oh, yeah, they're being fulfilled and they point towards the fulfillment, but we must be careful that we don't take those things and, uh, and apply them to a completion or a fulfillment when they are not yet Fulfilled, And more than that, things first have to happen before they can be fulfilled. So we've got to be careful of our theology and, uh, and uh, what we call over-realizing, um, over-realized theology in that we, we are interpreting things that they have already happened when that's not what the scripture is teaching. And so thus we fall into error. And so the, the, the nation of Israel is a perfect case of this. 
Christians in their love and their zeal for, for Israel and the Jew. We our desire to see prophecy fulfilled in Jesus' return. We fall into emotional presuppositions concerning Bible prophecy. We fall into emotional presuppositions concerning Bible prophecy. And this means this, and this means that, and could this be that? And, and look, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Don't misunderstand me this morning. That's what we need to do. But even good, well-intentioned Christians can be misled, or some even are deceived. But, but just, just in this case, let's just look at it as being misled and a misunderstanding or ignorant. And one of these uh, aspects is to give you an illustration, an example, is the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. Now, there's no doubt that the rebirthing of the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I mean, we're talking about God after they had rejected their Messiah and after the events of 70 AD and the, the Romans going into Jerusalem and the destruction that was wrought havoc, and they were scattered across the world and were, were thousands of years. And then we know the events of, the, uh, of, uh, of Hitler in Germany and uh, all that was um, uh, afflicted upon the Jew there and then also in other times throughout the course of history. And out of that, we saw a, a remnant go into, um, uh, you know, it was the British that didn't want them, and it was the British that was in rule of the land at the time. You know, the Israelis are not the occupiers, you know, or oppressors or whatever. They were put there. And so they said, we don't want you. Go here. And so, you know, there you go. So <clears throat> that's, and hey, that's what it was the Lord's doing. The God sovereignly orchestrated all that. And so we, and we get excited because we, we're seeing the nation of Israel in the land. We're seeing uh, uh, all of, uh, uh, the, in, the regathering of the, of the children of Israel throughout the world. And we see that this is exactly what the Bible foretold. And we are excited about that. And again, we're excited about it, but we can't be overly excited in the sense that we misinterpret what actually is going on and what God's doing. Because, again, Christians in their zeal for Israel, we look at this and we say, well, look, they're in the land. And so, so God will never allow his enem their enemies to overrun them. Oh, my gosh, look, they've just been attacked. God's going to wipe them all out. Well, one day he will. But at the same time, we have this misconceived idea that Israel is in... In, uh, listen, I found this word. I'll read it to you. Israel is inviolable. You say, what does that mean? I had to look it up too. So, well, in other words, there's a conception, a misconception that somehow Israel is secure from violation or assault or trespass and that anything that anyone that attacks them is automatically going to be zapped by God and, and destroyed. And ultimately, that's what the Bible says. But let me say to you this morning that there are instances that we see clearly in the Scripture in which we can see that Israel is being gathered by God. Uh, and, and yes, where it fits into God's will and purposes, He will destroy those that are interfering with His will or His purpose that He's working in the nation and in terms of His ultimate fulfillment of these things. And that might be the case here, and it appears to be the case in terms of 
But we don't know where this could lead and the, how this could escalate and where all these things could go. But all we know is that God is in control. But we're all caught up. And again, rightly so. In, and moved by the current plight of the children of Israel. That's why we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are rightly outraged at the atrocities that we're seeing against, committed against them. I mean, it's evil. It's wicked. And so this is normal. It's natural. This is, this is, this is right. But again, in our love and in our zeal and in our passion, we too can be misled. So the question is, well, what is God doing? Why is this happening? Israel is back in the land. And we know this is a miracle of God. And so when we see Israel's enemies, uh, or when we see Israel's enemies attack them, we automatically assume that God will not let Israel suffer. That's what we assume. Oh, no, no, you know, if they've suffered a little bit, but God's was, was, that was, it's not going to get any much worse than that. We just have this misconception. I see it. He will not allow those enemies to prevail. And I say to you this morning, well, is that really true? Is that really true? What does the Bible teach us? What does it reveal? And to some extent it is, to the degree, as I said, that it lines up with God's overall purpose and plan. He will defend them if it suits his purpose and his plan and what he's doing because that's as, as it always is. But don't interpret it that their enemies will never or ever will prevail against them because if you make that assumption, you're not understanding the scriptures this morning. Now, I want to give you another illustration if I can, so stick with me as we pro pro progress. And I won't use the person's name, although I think you'll know who I'm talking about. And I, I don't want to use the person's name because I'm not here to criticise the individual. In fact, I have a great respect and love for the individual. So this is not with any contention as such. But it's a men's ministry that many of us in this assembly are familiar with. And, uh, but I'm not going to mention his name, although you probably may connect some dots. But he's a Messianic Jew, loves God, loves Jesus, loves his nation. And that, no problem, not a problem. But you see, I couldn't help but note what I considered to be an error of judgment this morning. And it's normal to be patriotic, especially as a Jew. But even, even they can be in error. And so... In identifying with the pain and the suffering of his own brethren and their response to their enemies, and he's been making various posts that we're, I think many of us follow. And in various posts, there were similar overtones, but there was one particular post. And that particular post had, an, had a Israeli soldiers that were, uh, you know, rejoicing because they had a couple of young young men for their bar mitzvah. And they were, they were obviously in a time of sadness and stress, but, you know, they were going to rejoice, and so they began to sing and dance a little bit. And, and, um, and the brother took this post and put it up, and he said these words. He said, they will never break our spirit. 
Now think with me. These were the words. They will never break our spirit. When I read those words, I was filled with trepidation. I trembled in my spirit and my heart broke. I was not angry. I was not outraged. I was just so deeply saddened, like Paul, a continual grief, a sadness came over me uh, as I read those words because as I considered those words and I'd considered what I understand the Bible teaches and what God says in his word, I realized that within that statement lies the fundamental problem with the Jew. It's the lies, the fundamental problem and sin that identifies the nation, not just individually but corporately as a nation before God. So when I heard those words, uh, we will, we, we, we will, they will never break our spirits. I, I was, I, I, I broke. I just, I said, no, this can't, this is, this can't be happening. So why was I so affected, some of you may ask. Well, I want to submit to you this morning that God's whole plan and purpose with the nation of Israel is to ultimately break them. Now listen to what I've just said. God's ultimate plan and purpose is to break the spirit of the nation of Israel corporately and individually. His plan is to break their strength, their self-reliance, their self-will. The whole plan of God and the prophetic purposes of God is to break the nation. And so when I hear the words from, well, uh, that says that we, our spirit will not be broken, it is misguided. I know it's born from a love and a passion and a patriotism and all of those things. Don't get me wrong. I get it. This is not a condemnation or criticism even. It's just an, to note it's an error. It's not in line with what God's word teaches because ultimately God is going to break the nation of Israel. It's what the word of God teaches us. And this message of breaking the nation, it's not something that is foreign to the word of God. In fact, it's central to the gospel message. Christ was broken, was he not? Even Christ, it starts with Christ. Christ was broken and it was out of that brokenness on Calvary that gave way to the glorious salvation that we have today. And so too, when it comes to the Christian, you know, we are to break the whole purpose of God's laws as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we can come to the cross and at the cross we can receive God's grace and forgiveness and salvation. And you know, the process is, is that we are to break before God. That we would say, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. And, our, his, and we, we see the brokenness of Christ in Calvary and that, that God's love. He died for me and was crucified for me. And that breaks our spirit. And we see our own sin and our own rebellion. And it breaks us. And we come to God in the cross and say, Lord, forgive me. 
Isn't that salvation? So when it comes to this principle that we're talking about that applies to Israel, it's not a new, not anything new. It's the ways of God. It's the pattern. It's what God has ordained. It's how it happened. He He did it to Christ, first and foremost. And we find it in the gospel and we find it in the nation of Israel. <clears throat> when we consider anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jews throughout history, it breaks our hearts to see such suffering. And in such suffering, we ask the question, where is God? Ever asked that question? Where's God in all of this? I mean, I recently travelled with my wife. We went to Europe, as you know, and we were in Germany and Amsterdam there and we were, did some tours and we looked at things that related to the, um, to the, uh, the Holocaust. And we went to a concentration camp and we were, being, we were seeing and hearing firsthand the atrocities. And I cannot even put it in the words this morning how offensive it is. I mean, the depth of despair and suffering that was inflicted upon the Jew is incomprehensible, incomprehensible in terms of, one, it's how evil and wicked it is, but two, it's incomprehensible in the sense that it's hard to even grasp. It's evil. It's wicked. And yet we must face those realities and say, God, where are you? And I have asked those questions over the years. And when it comes to the question of God in these instances and others, I'm just illustrating it through that. Again, I want to say something to you. And that is this. God allowed it. God allowed it. I'm going to say something that's going to be even more offensive, but I'm scared to even say it. But in some instances, God is behind it. Now, this can outrage many. I mean, what are you talking about, Pastor Gary? How can you say that? And I know it's a harsh... Like I said, it's not something that just comes natural easily, but it's something that's so clearly there. Just read your Bibles. And we're going to go through some scripture to illustrate this in just a moment, but I'm just laying all of this as a foundation. And I have agonised over these questions too. And I have come to realise and accept that God is in this. He's not some distant observer. I mean, we're not going to read these things, but you can read Deuteronomy chapter 29... Matthew 24, you can read the book of Revelation and you can read so much throughout the prophets and the scriptures and, and this, this truth is clearly on display. But I want to look at a couple of scriptures with you as we consider the topic that we're dealing with. So I want you to turn with me. It's not a text. We're just going to read some scriptures now. But let's go firstly to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. And he has 
gone to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and he has preached to them the gospel and to draw them to himself. And we understand that many rejected him and the Pharisees and the religious establishment rejected him and we know it's ultimately going to lead to his crucifixion. But this is where we pick up in verse 37 where Jesus laments, and I mean laments. He is grieved in his spirit. Now listen to his words. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your home is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a cry of lament from Christ, from the heart of God for the nation because they rejected their Messiah and he wanted to gather them together, but they rejected him. And he is saying to them, your house will now be left to you desolate. And you will see my face no more in a national sense until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Keep that in mind as we work through these things this morning. Look at verse, chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and he departed from the temple and his disciples came up to him and, and, they, uh, and, uh, the, and they showed him the, the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see? Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another which shall not be thrown down. Jesus is predicting and prophesying about an event that would take place after his death 70 AD, we know it now historically, where Rome went into Jerusalem and they wrought havoc upon the Jewish nation. And so much so uh, that the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left upon another. That's how, the, the, that's how uh, thorough the destruction was of the city and of the people. And many died and were killed and so forth and they were scattered and they were, they were kicked out and and vomited out of the land, as the scripture would say. That's horrific. But that's just one example of many. Let's go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Jesus is heading, he's carrying his cross actually. And in verse 26, now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented for him. They're crying, they're mourning and lamenting for Jesus and at the cross. But listen to his response. And Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for your children. Or so he says, weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. 
And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they will do these things, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus is saying, Don't weep over me. Don't weep and mourn for me. Weep and mourn for yourselves because you, the nation does not know what is coming, what is about, the things that it's about to endure, the things that it's going to go through, the, more, the, 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 the suffering that is going to be inflicted upon the nation. He says, that's what we need to, you need to mourn for yourselves and for your children because of what lies ahead. And you see this introduction of things. Jesus is actually quoting from the prophet Hosea. Maybe, can you turn there as well? He's, he's quoting from the prophet Hosea. And it's chapter 10. And I want to read it to you from verse 1. Hosea, it says, Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. This is the nation of Israel at the time they were prospering. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their pillars or altars and he will ruin their sacred Pillars, verse 3. For now they say we have no king, but we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? That's their attitude. They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. This judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because the calf of Beth-Avon, for its people mourn for it and its priests shriek for it because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria uh, as a present for King Jerob, Ephraim, and receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Let's read on. But as for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water, also the high places of Avon. Um, they shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, now here, listen, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity, did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. Peoples shall be gathered against them, when I bind them for their two transgressions. And so when you read the context of where we found that, and I read the whole thing because it talks about Israel's sin and, and their ultimate captivity. And this not only relates, obviously, to that which was imminent in the, those days, it has a prophetic aspect. That's why Jesus took these words from Hosea and he applied it to the next phase of Israel's existence. And the days that laid ahead for them when he said, cover us and fall on us. And the reason being is because they have sinned against God. And God says, I will chasten them. I will. In fact, go to Hosea chapter 1, if you can. Just turn, turn back to the Hosea chapter 1. Going to the back, uh, the beginning where, where God says to them, he says... Um, in verse 4, then the Lord said to him, this is when Hosea is instructed to take a prostitute and, and marry her, and then she has children to him. And so she, the second child, he says, call his name Jezreel, 
For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. I will break the bow. That means I will break their strength. In the valley of Jezreel, the day is coming and it's appointed and it's still to come where God says, I will break the bow. I will break the natural strength and the arrogance and the pride and the self-will of the nation of Israel. I will break their strength. Let it be known. See, this is, a, this is really a scary concept, but it is exactly what the Bible teaches. And this is what God has done and continues to do because Israel can never be settled. Have you noticed that? Never. Even in the land now, even though they're still brought back into the land, they cannot settle until we know the prophecies are fulfilled, until Christ comes. But there's all these things that are playing out. And so this concept is right throughout the scriptures and we'll touch upon it in further in just a moment. But you see, when it comes to the gospel this morning, the Bible tells us that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the greatest need for the nation of Israel, as much as we are to love the Jew and seek testimony and serve them, and I have no issues with any of that, But at the end of the day, loving the Jew and not giving them the gospel is not going to help the Jew. See, Israel needs the gospel. Israel, the Jew, needs to hear about Christ. And in our misguided love and zeal for Israel and doing all of these things, the gospel sometimes takes a back seat. Not always, but sometimes. And we must understand that the greatest need for the Jew is he needs to be saved. In the same way, yes, God has a plan for the nation as it relates to his prophetic plan, but in the dispensation of grace and in the dispensation of the church, as we call it, the Jew needs the gospel and he needs to repent just like the Gentile needs to repent. And he's saved in the same way by faith in the Son of God. It's the same message. And so in our love for Israel and whatever we do for the nation, we should be contributing as much as we want to show them Christ and serve them and love them. At the end of the day, it all comes back to this. The the Jew needs to hear the gospel. Because that is what the scripture teaches us. The Jew's greatest need is the same as it was when Jesus walked the earth. That he would believe in and accept Jesus as the Messiah. See, being born a Jew doesn't equal salvation. Just because a person is Jewish, that we understand Paul addresses this clearly in the scriptures. Just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're a Jew and you're automatically, you know, qualify for salvation. It doesn't work like that. Now as Gentiles, we're, not, we're told, we are warned not to boast against the natural branches. You know, people look at Israel and they say, oh, look, you know, it's because you're so rebellious and, and this and that. And, you know, and, and, and again, you can speak truth but still have not the right heart, right? And it's true. The, the Jew is suffering because of his rejection of the Messiah. Jesus even said it. 
And so we look at that and, and we see how they conduct themselves and what they say and the things that they do and we grieve for them. We don't boast against them as is the manner of some. Well, you know, now God's turned his attention to the Gentiles and he has. And, you know, now he took off the, as Paul argued, he took, you know, the Gentiles will say, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You know, that's how important I am. Well, it says, don't be careful because if God didn't spare the natural branches, he might not spare you either. So don't go boasting somehow that you're, because God has done this for a specific purpose and you must understand that we are to provoke the Jew to jealousy uh, as we, as we, uh, because we have the Jewish Messiah. And so we are to show them uh, Christ and preach Christ and demonstrate to them Christ. And that's why Paul would write after speaking these things in, in Romans 10. He says, my, heart, my prayer to God and my heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. That's not just in the context of their national salvation, but his countrymen of the day, that here they would come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true today. It hasn't changed. And so, when I hear words that they will not break our spirit, and I see that, I don't get angry. I feel scared and sad for the Jew and the nation because I understand what God has planned. And in these last days, he's going to break the spirit of the nation of Israel. I know there's a lot of other things that are accompanied in that. You know, I'm just focusing in on really one aspect here. I'm zoning in, but it's a very critical and important and potent truth. And if you disconnect from this, then you'll misinterpret so many other things. And yes, you know, God is doing his, God's going to judge the nations. Yeah, and we'll see that. God's going to act in this manner. He's going to draw them to himself so that he can judge them. But in the process of that, there's multiple things that are playing themselves out. You know, we talk about the great tribulation where God's going to judge the world. But at the same time, it's concurrently the time of Jacob's trouble in which he's going to judge and, and the Jews are going to suffer. So you can't be ignorant of the overall purpose. And that's my purpose this morning. You know, Jesus said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But, um, whoever, but on whomever this, it falls, it will grind them to powder. Whoever falls, Jesus, whoever falls on this stone, meaning Christ, will be broken. That's what happens when we come to Christ. We break our pride, our sin, all these things. But if, it, but if that stone falls on somebody, it grinds them to powder. And this is what we're dealing. This is the concept behind what we're dealing with. And the whole prophetic plan and purpose of God is to break the spirit of the nation, so that they can be saved. And ultimately, there will be a remnant that will be saved. Israel will be saved. You can read it in the prophets. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter thirty. Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 30. This is, talks about what we understand as a period of time that's referred to in specifically, I mean, right throughout Scripture and the prophets, but in Daniel, the Revelation, and it's referred to here by the prophet Jeremiah. 
in God's word. Now let's read from verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back the captivity of my people Israel and cause them to return to the land and give them to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Amen. There it is right there. There's the promise of a returning to the land. But Israel's returned to the land in unbelief, right? Not in faith of the Messiah. So let's continue. Verse 4. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord. Did I... Did I say 29? Yes, okay, let's continue, sorry. Verse 5, for thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And now, and uh, ask now and see whether a man is ever in labour with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labour and all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. And listen, he shall be saved out of it. This event, this time, a time of Jacob's trouble that is, 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 will be fulfilled in the 70th week of Daniel that will take, we see in the book of Revelation and throughout the prophets. This is a, an event, this is a time unprecedented. You talk about the history of, of the Jew and his suffering. What is going to happen in the time of Jacob's trouble is going to for, enter into an ultimate fulfillment on a scale that we can't even imagine. That God says that even men, they won't be dancing around and saying like we, they'll never break our spirit, but they will be in, they will be pale, they will be in despair, they'll have their hands on their knees like a woman in labour, because of the anguish that has come upon them. This is horrific. It's horrific, and there's so much more in Scripture that deals with all of this that paints a a more bleaker picture of this time. But it concludes and says, but he shall be saved out of it. Oh, hallelujah. See, that's the glorious. Israel will be saved out of that time. Now let's, let's read just, if we can read just a little bit further. Verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from, his, from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. So this is the, the fulfillment. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from, your, from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him Afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. A complete end of you. I won't do it. Won't be allowed. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. And so it says, verse 12, let's continue. For your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. There is no one to plead for your cause that you may be found, bound up. 
You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have, listen, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy. This is God with the chastisement of a cruel one. These are profound words. For the, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities. That's why. Because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. I have done these things to you. I mean, these are sobering and solemn words. They're hard to digest. I will cause. And so we see these things. I mean, maybe, can, we, can we just go to Daniel? Like I said, there's a few scriptures here, so stick with me. Daniel chapter 9. Prophet Daniel chapter 9. This is this being one of the most profound, specific scriptures of interpretation that gives us such clarity about what lies ahead. Daniel 9, let's look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy God. These things is what God's going to accomplish. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks and the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. This is about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But then it talks about the Messiah would come. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. And so these are, these are representative of years. And Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This is the crucifixion and the, the cross. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This now switches. It's very detailed, but I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to go through and expose, uh, you know, do an exposition on it now. But the idea is that the Messiah will be crucified and cut off, not for himself, but for the sins of the people. And then the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. This is the Antichrist. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus referred to. When you see the abomination of desolation, he says to the, to the Jew, he says, watch out. Because what's about to be unleashed upon the nation is, this, this is, is horrific. And so I won't go into those, any further details there, but other than to point out that the scriptures are so specific, this 70th week of Daniel is a representative of a seven-year period that's where we get, fundamentally, we, take, we get this from when we talk about the, tri the Great Tribulation and the time of Jacob's trouble and this, this seven-year period. And ultimately, in that period, 
Revelation 12 talks about the beast that will rise and we talk about um, understanding the, um, the, 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 the wrath of Antichrist and the world that is going to be unleashed upon the Jewish nation. All the nations will turn against the Jew in this period on an unprecedented level, not at seen. And God is bringing this to pass and allowing for this and he's causing this time of Jacob's trouble. But look at what God's going to do. Let's turn to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. Now in verse 7, I'll read this, I'm going to just backtrack because you can see the prophetic implications. So let's look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and the man who is my companion, says the Lord. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now this is obviously a prophecy of Christ, right? Strike the shepherd and he'll be scattered and the sword was awakened and this is what was went into Christ at the Calvary and as he bore the... He was the propitiation for our sins and so forth. But listen to verse 8. And it shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord. Now this is a different time period. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Verse uh, chapter 14, behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. This is horrific. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations and his, as he fights in the day of battle. In, in their day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is, the, this is Christ, the second coming. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And as the, as the, Mount, of Olives, uh, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall be moved towards the north and half towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach Israel. Yes, you shall flee. And as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah. And so, again, thus says, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. You see, God, this, is a, this is a time where God's going to bring all the nations against Jerusalem. And not only that, they're going to prevail upon Jerusalem. Mark those words. They're going to break the spirit of the Jew, which nation. But in the, in the same time, God is executing a judgment on the nations as a whole. So it's a twofold process, as is in many cases in Scripture. And so this is what's happening. God is going to break the strength of the nation. Of Israel. Go to Zechariah 12. Look back a couple of chapters. 
Again, let me read it to you. It's the best way I can do it is just read it. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. And uh, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come... It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. That's what Jerusalem is right now, isn't it? It's a heavy stone. It's a heavy burden. How do you solve the problem of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount? You've got the mosque and you've got the whole temple. How do you solve this conundrum? Because that's at the heart of everything that's going on right now. In fact, um, they, Hamas labelled... I can't remember the phrase, their word now, but they labelled, they named their, their operation a term that literally relates to the Temple Mount. Maybe you don't, I see a few people nodding. You know what I'm talking about? I can't remember the word, but that's, it, it, it makes reference because that's what is at the heart of the whole thing. And it's not just physical, it's a spiritual issue. And ultimately, God is going to be, uh, is going to be glorified amongst the principalities and powers just like he was at the cross, but he's also going to destroy, not just in this instance, that those wicked uh, Hamas and you know, Hezbollah and Iran, but there's going to be many others that are involved and the nations will turn against them in that time and God is going to destroy them with the breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth, it tells us in Thessalonians. And he's going to bring the judgment. But anyway, let's continue. And in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse and the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Or in other words, they're going to turn to God and be strengthened by God. And he begins to talk about that. But listen, when God becomes the strength of Israel... He has to first break their strength. And this is a fulfillment of this. Look at verse 10 of Zechariah. And this is God speaking about the nation, their salvation, and how it's going to happen. This is really significant because it says in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Think about that. This is speaking before Christ is even crucified. They will look on me whom they pierced. This is the Messiah. You know, when Jesus said, you will not see me again till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to look on the Messiah, the one whom they rejected, the one whom they crucified. And it says, you shall look on him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They're going to be broken. Listen to what it says. In that day there shall be a great mourning, a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Levi by itself. And their wives by themselves. And the family of Shimei by itself. And their wives by themselves. 
Think God's making a point here? Everyone by themselves. They're going to be broken. They're going to mourn. They're going to look upon him and say, what have we done? And in that moment, their spirit will break. But at at that time, God says, it's that, that moment when they are broken at the end of themselves, when the nations are about to wipe them out and snuff them out, which is what they want to do, the God's going to intervene at that moment and he's going to destroy those enemies. But he says, I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And this is where in their mourning they will look upon him whom they pierced. And this, in this day, they will be saved. Verse 14, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and divide by themselves. And this is where they will be saved and Jesus will come and he will save that remnant, that one third that Zechariah referred to that will come through the fire. And then we find in scripture that Israel will be saved. Can you see it? It's clearly there. In fact, Isaiah himself, he saw it. And in in Isaiah chapter 66, specifically, he, he says these words. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Speaking about the nation of Israel. Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labour, this is the labour that we saw in Zechariah, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I not cause delivery? Shut up the womb, says God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. We love Jerusalem. We love Israel. And we will rejoice in the prophetic plan and purpose of God for that nation. Because when God comes and saves Israel and when they believe on the Lord, they are going to be, they will enter into the destiny and the promises and the covenant that God has ordained for that nation that they could never manufacture themselves. And every time they thought they got close, they consistently, you know, everyone asks the question, how did Israeli defences get broken? They've got the best army in the world. They've got the best uh, equipment. And yet here they are sleeping uh, at the wheel while, you know, all these terrorists are coming in. Who would have planned that? Because God's never going to let Israel get to a place of security. He's not going to allow that until this time comes. Then it will happen. We are to rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. We mourn for the Jew. We mourn for the plight of Israel, what we see, the atrocities. But we must see things through the lens of scripture this morning. And that's why we are told in Psalm 20, 122 verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. There's a blessing for those that love Jerusalem. It's the city of God. Jesus is going to come and he's going to reign and rule. And the Jew, and not only that, Zechariah says, and all the saints will come with Jesus. Amen? So we're in, we're, we're in that. We're going to be glorified together. Hallelujah. The mystery of Israel and the church. There's another term they use. But we we need to just, we grieve with them, we need to pray for them, for their individual salvation, that they would come to know Jesus. 
And the only way we can do that is to show them a saviour who suffered. They, the nation knows what it means to suffer. So when we preach Christ to them, we show them, you know, <laughs> Isaiah 53, they think it's them. They think it's Isaiah 53 is talking about them as a nation, but it's not. It's talking about the Messiah and what he went through and, that, and, and why. And so if the, when their eyes are open to the sufferings of Christ, uh, then all of a sudden they, they, they see. And so even though the national aspect applies to a future event, to the nation itself in terms of their salvation, now the gospel is to be preached to them. Christ is to be preached in the hope that they shall be saved. And so, in that context, this, this, this morning, we pray for the Jew, we pray for the Gentile, we pray for the Palestinians, that they would come to know Jesus, because God says that his desire is that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. So let's pray this morning. Oh God, I just come before you, Lord. We've touched upon much, Lord, and really we've just touched upon it. But if, Lord God, I've sought to make the point, Lord, that you have shown me. And, of, Lord, I found prompting and compelling to speak of this morning. God, I pray that you would take this glorious truth that is in your word, that relates to your prophetic purposes, your promises, the nation of Israel, Lord, help us to understand the times in which we live, interpret the times in which we live, and know what we ought to be doing in this hour. And so, Lord, I pray as your people, we would continue to pray for the nation and pray that in the midst of all that they are enduring and suffering, that they would come to know Jesus, even now, Lord, because the Jew can still be saved even now through the Christ and the cross. The offer is to them as well as to us, it's to all. And to the Palestinians, Lord, that uh, also in the, caught up in the, some of them being innocent, caught up in the midst of all of these things. So, Father, we just pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen.